for the last time in this series, and hopefully not the last time ever, to open your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to be concluding uh, our series through the book of Acts today, Lord willing. Acts chapter 27 and chapter 28 as well. We talked about this last week, how these last few chapters of Acts are very much in in the narrative genre and repeat themselves uh, with purpose uh, as Paul gives his testimony um, and before the different trials. And last week we looked at three of the five trials uh, as he comes in. And so... um, some folks to, to welcome folks in. Come on in, and we're just so glad everyone is here. So Acts chapter 27, uh, we read a portion of chapter 28 earlier, and um, we, I want to look at chapter 27 some today, but I want to, uh, if we would, just jump down to um, verses 23 to 25 of chapter 27. We'll read that. We'll have a word of prayer and jump in. Verse 23. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and before God who God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Let's pray. Father, I ask you'd help us as we look into the book of Acts here. As we look in these last two chapters. Lord, I pray that you'd just guide our study. Lord, thank you for your spirit. Lord, I pray that we would learn lessons here. That we'd apply them. That we would give ourselves to um, trusting you. To faith in you. And then just committed to the advance of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is an exciting day and also a sad day as we come to the end of Acts. And I tell you what, I have really just appreciated this study and I appreciate you all giving me the opportunity to to, to walk through it. And um, it's been very helpful to me to kind of connecting the, the most of the New Testament because you, uh, when you're seeing uh, Paul in the different cities and where uh, kind of in the, the, the timeline of when and where he was in writing the other epistles, uh, just an awesome thing. So, in these two closing chapters of Acts, we deal mainly with Paul's journey to Rome, uh, this cruise that he's on, and that's why you see there in the title in the bulletin, Are We There Yet? Maybe some of you parents heard that a time or two this week, uh, traveling for holidays, uh, maybe visiting family. Are we there yet? And so we finally get to Rome and what that promise in chapter 1 that we would be Christ's witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and in the uttermost parts of the earth. And that really outlined the whole book of Acts, uh, that the gospel started there in Jerusalem, advanced through Judea and Samaria, and now it comes to Rome. And we come to Rome as we see that in that verse in chapter 28. And so each of these chapters gives us much to observe about Paul's example Uh, But I really want to focus in as we overview these two chapters with two main lessons for us to get. Now, as we approach the text, 
it is important for us to note some just, just principles of how we understand the Bible, how we would interpret the Bible. Last week, we reminded ourselves of the importance of um, that seeing the passage in the, in the style or the genre that it is. And so when we look at uh, the book of Acts, it's, it's history. And it's a narrative. It's a story. It's also a transition time in, in God's redemptive plan. So there are things that are transitioning that are once for all. That they happened, and, and so they describe what happened. And, and as it's describing what's going on in the early church, there, there is a way we can kind of look, you know, open the hood and see the anatomy of the church, but it's mainly just describing. So it's important for us to recognize that many of the lessons we learned from Acts, uh, the book of Acts, are descriptive and not prescriptive. And, and what I mean by that is we don't, we don't look back and say, oh, that's what we should always do it that way, um, but that we. Uh, it's describing what might have happened at that time. And so um, so that was a lesson we saw about how we understand the Bible last week. This week, I want to note that um, if we were to look at the Bible, and I, I got this from um, Alistair Begg, that, that you, you want to draw a line, if we would draw a line in the middle of like the chalkboard, that we don't want to go above the line or below the line. And what that means is like, um, there are many that um, do not believe in the authority of the Bible. That would be what we would say theologically liberals that would deny that whether these things historically happened or, I mean, there's a lot of details and the storm at sea and the shipwreck and the viper, the, the snake biting Paul's hand, uh, you know, and, and you're kind of like, oh, I bet Luke was just hearing all these myth stories and they put them all together trying to elaborate this and make this a really good juicy one uh, to, to get this Christian uh, sect off the ground. You know, you got to kind of have a good superhero story to make this work. And so we'll do that. And, and they're not, and that's real. We don't, we, and you guys have been around this church long enough to know that we, we believe the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, inspired, verbally, the word of God. I mean, it is the scriptures. So we don't want to go there. We're like, well, maybe this happened. Maybe this didn't happen. And maybe this is all just conjecture. No, 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 no. We don't want to go below that line. But the other temptation that a lot of people do when they're interpreting, like in the old Old Testament or even passages like in the book of Acts is if there's that line of where the, the cut cutting it straight is not to go below it but to go above it and what that is would be um, you heard of an allegory where everything is something else you know um, <clears throat> and so there's um, I was reading a commentary this week about on, on the uh, here that it was saying you know the um, uh, that, that you know, the, they're in the chapter twenty-seven when they're they're you know they're running, going to run aground, and they put the anchors out, and they put four anchors to drag them when they're putting the you know they're realizing it's one hundred and twenty-five feet, and then it's only ninety feet, so they're fearing they're going to run aground on the rocks. So they they put four anchors, and so someone would say, well, those four anchors represent um, doubt. And, you know, and have four different anchors. And then, of course, the anchors always change, you know. And, and, and that's where we're kind of going above where the Bible is. Like, if you, if you can read a passage and you hear the preacher say something about the passage that Luke didn't mean for that to come across, it's, that's not how we want to interpret the Bible. Uh, now, if there's clues in the Bible that say, hey, this represents this, well, then, okay, we can go with that. But if it's, not, if it's not a clue for us there, we don't. So basically, there's an old saying that everybody would say is that the plain things are the main things and the main things are the plain things. So we just want to say what's there and we don't want to say what's not there. 
Now, is it true that often struggles in life are pictured in storms? Yes. But we don't want to read too much into the story of Paul's journey from Jerusalem to, 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 um, to Rome. We want to just see what happens there. And there's one theme that I think really sticks out in that part of the journey. That'll be our lesson from chapter 27. Now, um, I kind of, you kind of feel for Paul because he, 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 he is, it's like he can't get a break. It's like he, everywhere he goes, there's problems. And he's kind of been on this thing and uh, you know, all these different trials. And he's stuck there in Caesarea. And he's there for a couple years. And he appeals to Caesar after Agrippa comes in and he meets Agrippa, and finally, okay, now I get to go to Rome, and then he has all these traveling difficulties. You ever had a day like that, or years like that, where it seems like everything's just slower and more complicated, and you expected this to happen, and it seems like that, so it slows down, the story slows down immensely, and gives a lot of details about Paul's trip. So let's start in verse 27, chapter 27, verse 1. It says, and it was decided that we should sail for Italy. And they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Now, I was really tempted to do some romaine lettuce puns about Caesar and salads, but I've decided not to. Um, Anyway, so his name is Julius, and embarking on a ship of Adramidium, which is basically a, a smaller vessel that would be used to kind of, it wouldn't be a, a across the sea, but the only thing which was about to set sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. And so we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Now I want you to note there the we. The next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to uh, go his friends and be cared for. You will see several of these we's and we saw that early on when Paul was leaving uh, Ephesus and he was at Corinth and Ephesus and coming to Jerusalem some we's and what that shows is that the author is putting himself there and it is very much uh, accepted and believed that Luke, as long as well as this Aristarchus and some others, uh, willfully put themselves uh, under arrest like Paul to be with him and travel along with him. And so Paul, I mean, Luke's goal is to give an orderly account of these things. We saw in his first book, the Gospel of Luke, and also in the second volume um, in the book of Acts, he's doing this. So he, so we see in verse 1, uh, he says, we... He says there again, we just read, we, when we get to chapter 28, verse 16, he says, we, <coughs> Dr. Luke is on the scene. And uh, so, and it puts all of this in, a, I mean, this is where one of the reasons that uh, to give uh, uh, credibility to the Bible, that the Bible puts itself in space and time, eyewitness accounts, details that, own, that someone wa- listening from a distance or have heard the story second or third hand uh, doesn't include all these details. This is firsthand eyewitness account. And even putting in like who's ruling and what people. And so we know that this is in the fall because he even talks about how the feast, of, the feast has ended. So this is the fall of the year 59 A.D. That this happens. So this is probably on October, November-ish of 59 AD that this, this account takes place. And we see this transition 
Um, in chapter 27, all these details of the Mediterranean cruise. And so, verse 4, putting out to sea, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because of the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea, open, across the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. And we sailed slowly for a number of, number of days, arriving with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete of Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. And since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast is already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo of the ship, but also of our lives. Now, Paul is a fellow traveler at this point, and we know later on in the passage there's about 276 individuals on the vessel, and Paul's probably the, the most experienced. I mean, he's got the, mo- the, he's got the most frequent sailing miles under his badge here, right? I mean, he's, he's, been, he's done a lot of sailing. He's, got the most, he's traveled well, and, um, and he says, hey, guys, this is not the time to travel. Uh, but, verse 11, the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they would reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. And then we come to verse 13, where it tells us of this storm at sea. And so the verses 1 to 12 give us these details of the journey. And then when we get to verse 13, we see one of the most famous shipwrecks in history. And we love stories of shipwrecks. We love stories of recovering ship, shipwreck goods. And we make movies about them and things like this. But this is one of the most famous uh, stories here. So he starts off and he tells us in verse 13, Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called a nor'easter, struck down from the land and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind we gave way to it and were driven along now he's given all these historical details he's given all these geographical details and he's also giving us many nautical details uh, about what's going on here um and then run, verse 16, running under the lee of a small island called Cotta, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat and this is basically the little dinghy and after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship, wrapping it around with some type of cabling or something like that so that it wouldn't be broken apart. And, they, and fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. And since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. Now, I I, kind of wonder sometimes if there was a little bit of, not glee, but a little, 
I told you so, or as the King James would probably say, I informed thee thusly, you know, that yeah, he got, guys, I told you this was going to happen, you know, uh, you should have listened to me. Set sail from Crete and, and, and incurred this journey and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. And then we read earlier, for this very night there stood before me an angel from God, whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted to you all that you shall sail with you. So take heart, for I have faith in God. And this is where I see a theme here coming out in the lesson. Verse 27 describes uh, that we've seen all in this journey, but this key passage here that the angel speaks to Paul to not tells him not to be afraid. You're going to stand before Caesar. And Paul believes this and believes this promise of God. And so I believe that the lesson for us here is this. If we're going to follow Paul's example, that we need to have faith in God's promises. So do you have faith in God's promises for you today? The theme of this chapter is the providence of God, that God's going to accomplish his, prom- his promise to Paul. And so there's a lesson for us to embrace God's sovereignty by trusting his promises. Embrace God's sovereignty by trusting his promises. So he says, I believe God, in verse 25. Paul's confidence was not in his power of positive thinking or some self-help he had or in his awareness of, how, of, of sailing and his experience with that. His confidence was in the trustworthiness of the promise of God. That the angel said this, reminded me of the promise of God, God's plan for me, I'm going to believe that, and that settles it. He knew God's plan was for him to go stand before Caesar and give testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's like, Guys, you're not going to die. No one's going to be lost. Now, there is this one detail he needed to mention that, but we must run aground on some island, <laughs> you know, that, um, that he had put in there. So he trusts him, and then they, they go on, and they, they're fearing the rocks. They weigh the anchor. I mentioned that. We're coming here. They come to dawn, the 14th day. Then we're in verse 34. Um, they, they, they're, they're all okay. They end up coming on. And then the shipwreck in verse 38. Now when that day they would not recognize the, uh, recognize the land, but they noticed a bay, a beach. They planned if possible to run the ship ashore. So they cast off all the anchors, left them in the sea, and the same time loosened the ropes and tie, that, that had tied the rudders and then hoisting the foresail the wind they made for the beach. But striking a reef or a sandbar, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable. And the stern was being broken up from the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners lest they'd swim away and escape. But the centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered that those who could swim to jump and those that wouldn't to take planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that they were brought safely to land. And that concludes verse chapter 27. And so Paul, it says there, he's, I believe God. We're going to be okay, guys. Paul's confidence is in this promise. He knew God's plan. And he included this, we see in verse 37, that there's 276 other passengers here. He trusts God in the storm. Now, storms, this is an adversity. And we all have storms in life and adversities that come into life. But I want to ask you, do you have such a relationship with God and such a confidence in Him that you believe Him 
when you are in your adversities, even though you don't see the evidence of his presence or his power in your life. Now, not trusting God can be a sin. I mean, we, when we disobey God, we're, we're defying his authority and despising his holiness. But when we don't trust God, we're not believing his promises, his sovereignty, his control. And that can be sin as well when we doubt God. Um, we're kind of like in the psalmist when they say, well, can God prepare a table for us in the wilderness? Or like, Does God even have this control here? Um, so I want us to see this, that we can trust God through the eyes of faith, even when we don't sense from our perspective, the circumstances. Uh, faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of God. Our faith is not in circumstances, but in the promises of God. He had this promise from the angel, assurance of the vision that he had from Jesus himself. We have those same promises through the scriptures. In the scriptures, we can see the correct view of God's relationship and his promises to us, his plans for the world, and how we can believe him when we're in hard circumstances. So trusting God means that we believe that he's in control when we're in a storm. I mean, no more. I mean, there's no, I mean, I don't know how many of you have done much sailing, but like, I mean, there's no other time that you feel more vulnerable and at the whims of the weather than when you're at sea uh, in a storm. I mean, it's just, you're just totally, you know, at the mercy of that. Um, it's just a, that we realize how small humans are and how little control we have over this world. So trusting God means we believe he's in control, that, that there is no dichotomy between whether God is great and God is good. God is great and he's good. He is, he is good and he cares, but he's also great and exercises control over everything. He is involved in the affairs of his creation. And so nothing, someone said it this way, nothing in all of creation stands or acts independently of the Lord's will. That the so-called laws of natures are nothing more than the physical expression of the steady will of God. I mean, he tells us in Isaiah that he controls the stars. He tells us that um, in Nehemiah, he talks about inanimate creation. Uh, in, in the Psalms, he talks about the rain and the grass and the, uh, he, that he made us that in our inmost being. He tells us this in the Psalms uh, he, about our, our daily food. Uh, Psalm, in the Psalm 31, talks about how he, he, our times are in his hand. He is in control. So if we are to trust God, we need to recognize that he is continuously at work in every moment, no matter what the circumstance. So Paul's in a pretty bad circumstance here. Um, Margaret Clarkson said it this way, that the sovereignty of God is the one impregnable rock to which the suffering human heart must cling. The circumstances surrounding our lives are no accident. So Paul can say, no matter what the circumstance is, I mean, he advised these guys, don't do this. They didn't take his advice. They, they made wrong decisions. The storm comes up, it's out of his control. But he's still in the midst of that to be able to say, guys, I believe God. I've got confidence in God. We're going to be fine. So the Lord is the Lord of history. All circumstances. There's nothing too small or insignificant. And he talks about how a sparrow doesn't fall that he doesn't know. Subappointments and of things of like this Julius guy of the Roman Empire are all under his control. The decisions that these men make, that these see the captain, the owner of the ship make, the pilot uh, make, are all under God's control. No detail of your life is out of God's control. We are all in his hands. 
as the song says. He's got the whole world in his hands. So we must never, we, we often would never deny God working in miracles. And we recognize God works in miracles. And you kind of all, oh, and there's a storm, you kind of want to see, you know, a peace be still moment and everything calms down. And we, we, but often it's harder for us to trust God when it's not a miracle that he performs, but just the direct or indirect intervention in the affairs of people and what the Bible, what we would know as providence and the normal way God exercises his sovereignty over his creation. We struggle with trusting him in that way. So Paul trusts God and he's able to declare, I believe God. Despite the poor decision of others. These guys made the wrong decision. All of us at some time are going to find ourselves and our futures in the hands of other people. That there's decisions that other people make. Maybe that's a boss. Someone that picks someone over you to get a certain position or opportunity or someone's decision about you know whatever it might be i mean all of us are going to be in some situation where somebody else's decision drastically affects our lives and our future so how do we respond when we find ourselves seemingly in the hands of someone else and we need them to make a certain decision and they don't make it or they make the wrong decision and it affects us in a way we don't see as positive in a positive light Do we just resort to being critical and upset and gossiping and criticizing and blasting the decision that they made? Or do we recognize that God's sovereign even over the bad decisions of other people that might affect us? Proverbs says that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And if God can sway the the, the strongest, most absolute will... He can control the decisions of anyone making decisions that would affect us this week. So we can trust him. The, those in the world that might think that they have control, that this captain really thought, you know, I'm the one running this ship. No, there's someone much bigger. Spurgeon, in a sermon on God's providence, he said this way. He said, Napoleon once heard it said that a man proposes, but God disposes. Ah, said Napoleon, but I propose and dispose too. How do you think he proposed and disposed? He proposed to go and take Russia. He proposed to take all of Europe. He proposed to destroy that power. And how did he come back again? How did he dispose it? He came back solitary and alone. His mighty army perished and wasted, having well nigh eaten and devoured one another through hunger. Man proposes but God disposes. You can trust God. He, anyone else's decision. I mean, this is so relevant to us because I mean, we, we don't often think this way because you know, we've uh, experienced relative normal and stability in our country, but things can change so quickly when the decisions of other people, not us, and we can trust God. So we can trust God uh, in, despite other people's poor decisions like Paul does. I believe God, despite you guys' bad decisions. He can trust God despite circumstances that are out of his control. I mean, he knew he'd be going to Rome. He probably didn't think that the way he'd get there would be as a criminal, you know, um, as a prisoner. I mean, and, and then one of the other circumstances that he had no control over is this, is this storm 
In verse 14 there, um, it's called in some places a, a eurachlodon. I kind of like that word. Um, basically, what that is, is that's a compound word, uh, Greek and Latin, meaning an east wind and a north wind. Uh, that's why you see it in other translations, a northeaster, uh, because of the east wind and north wind. So this violently whirling winds caused by the meeting of these two air currents, hurricane-like force, and they're out there. And Paul has no control over that, but he still is able to say, I trust God, the promise of God. All of us are affected by the weather as well. I mean, sometimes big things like, you know, hurricanes, tornadoes, major storms, but all of us are affected by the weather in little ways. You're planning on a picnic and it rained. You're planning on doing this and it's too cold or too warm or this or that. All of us are affected by the weather. And, and rather than seeing it as an inconvenience, we can, we can recognize that God's in control over this. When we're affected by the weather, we, can, we, we often, um, you, you know, sometimes we just think of it as something just totally, you know, oh, that's just, you know, however it happened. But we need to recognize that even the weather is part of God's sovereignty over creation. In fact, there was one um, Christian meteorologist that counted over 1,400 references to weather and terminology of weather in the Bible. Um, so the Bible speaks a lot of God's control over the weather. And then the regular acts of weather and the major acts of weather. Uh, so how do you respond when the weather's not the way you prefer? We are entering into that time of year that I do not like the weather for about the next five months, Right? And so, I, so how do I respond when it's just a gray sky for seemingly a month or so, you know, and you don't see the sunlight? Do I take that? Or do I just complain about it? Or do I recognize, hey, God. I mean, I mean, really, I mean, complaining about the weather is like America's favorite pastime. You know, that's what we do. If we have nothing else to complain about, we'll complain about the weather, right? Too hot, too cold, too wet, too dry, too, you know, every, there's always something wrong with the weather. And... Um, but when we complain against the weather, we're kind of, you know, who sent it? Who's in control of it? Now, I'm not saying you got to be thrilled when it's 12 degrees outside, but recognize, all right, God had this plan. He had that, you know, recognize something there. Um, so Paul's trust in God and his promises was not in his circumstances. We, don't, we need to be careful that we don't try to interpret our trust in God based upon our circumstances. So Paul's saying, I believe God, he's going to get me to Rome. All the circumstances say otherwise. This guy made a decision that didn't follow your advice. Huge storm, Northeaster. Uh, these guys are going, the, the, the centurion wants to have you guys killed when you run aground on the thing. Doesn't look like you're going to make it to Rome. And Paul is saying, I believe God. His, so our trust and confidence in God should not be based upon our circumstances. Now, we need to be careful because all of us, myself included, tend to interpret things based upon our circumstances. Draw conclusions. Well, we planned on doing this, and then this happened, so that must be God telling me he doesn't want me to do that. Right? Don't we do that? Um, good and bad, you know? Um, you know, I went to Walmart and I saw this sign. Therefore, it must be God's will for me to buy a 75-inch TV with money that I don't have. And, 
you know, or something like that, you know, and we interpret it. Well, and it was, and the weather was nice on the way there, and I did find an extra, you know, HDMI cord at home that morning, so I must be, you know, it's a sign, right? Or whatever it might be, and we interpret things based upon circumstances. No, but we do this. Well, maybe God's will's not in this. This, this hasn't happened, or this did happen. It can go good, bad. It can go for us as a church corporately. It can go for you as an individual. It can go with your family. Um, well, I was going to give him one more shot, and then I went, and it was rainy, and the day I was going to go talk to him, and then he wasn't there, and he had to stay late at work. You know, however it might be, don't interpret things based upon circumstances. Our trust in God's promises and what the Scriptures say rather than circumstances. Paul was not a fair-weather follower. Well, the weather's bad. God must not be in this trip, you know. Bad weather and bad circumstances doesn't always mean that God's judging something. Or good weather and good circumstances doesn't always mean that God's blessing something. Or someone said storm doesn't mean doom. So our faith shouldn't take its directions from the shifty sands of our circumstances. That our faith needs to take its direction from the solid rocks of God's promises. So, how do you base your faith on? Is it in solid things or is it in circumstances? I would encourage you to take it. Um, you know, when we say things like, you know, what do you, what do you, is it what's going on in your life? Financially, in your family, in relationships? Is that what you're basing? God's goodness or plans for you? Or is it in what the scriptures say? Now, there's, so there's an interesting contrast between the three days, the storm, and things like that, that with another guy that was in a storm at sea, uh, a guy named Jonah. And he was disobeying God. Paul seems to be the opposite of he's obeying God and believing God. And so which one do you see yourself responding more like? And either way, the storm brings us to the position of acknowledging God is in control. And then we come to chapter 28. In chapter 28, um, we see this. Uh, the first 10 chapters, Paul is on this island at, of Malta. This is where he experiences the snake bite. And then we see in verses 11 to the end of the chapter, Paul in Rome, or as verse 14 says, and so we come to Rome. Finally, at Rome, there at last. So if we learn the lesson that Paul, who had faith in God's promises from chapter 27, we would learn the lesson in chapter 28 that Paul is fixed on God's purposes. So he has faith in God's promises, and he's fixed on God's purposes. So a church on the move is going to have faith in God's promises and be fixed on God's purposes. And so Luke wraps up this thing by sharing all the things that happened. So he tells the story here in the first 10 verses of how they kindled the fire. Um, the viper comes out and they came out um, because of the heat and fastened on, on his hand. Verse 4, and the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand and they said to one another, no doubt this man's a murderer. They could not escape the sea. Justice was not allowed him to live. And he however shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. And they were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly f fall down dead. 
But they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him. And they changed their minds and said that he is a God. It's so funny uh, how fickle crowds are. One minute they're saying, this guy's a murderer, he's going to die. And next minute they're like, oh, he must be a God. Let's worship him. Um, and now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief men of the island named um, Pubulus, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. And it happened after the father of Hubilus lay Sick with fever and dysentery. First-hand account. Paul, or Luke, puts it in there. Um, I, I wonder how many of you died of that playing Oregon Trail. Um, bad joke, bad joke. Okay. Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. When he had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases all came and were, were cured. And they also honored us greatly. And when they were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. These folks really help him. And he go, goes there, and then he puts the sea, and he, he comes to, by way of Syracuse, comes to Rome. And we see when we get there, Paul wraps up the book of Acts by sharing what he does when he gets there. So go to verse 23, if you would. And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging. They put him in house arrest there. A great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of the prophets and from the law of Moses and the prophets. We see this theme that we've seen throughout the book of Acts, that he is preaching the gospel from the Old Testament. We emphasized last week, you can't disconnect the Old Testament from the gospel. You can't unhitch it from the Old Testament. He preaches the gospel from the Old Testament. And then verse 24. And some were convinced by what he said, and others disbelieved. See this theme throughout the book of Acts as well. That there, when you preach the gospel, there will be mixed results. There will be some believe and some reject. And that's how it always is going to be. There's going to be mixed results. (coughs) Excuse me. But then we see this. I want us to note this. And disagreeing among themselves, verse 25, they departed after Paul made one statement that the Holy Spirit um, was right in saying to our fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For the people's heart has grown dull and their ears that they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, I would heal them. So basically what he's saying is there are going to be mixed results but that God is sovereign even over the responses of people to the gospel. That the way their ears hear and the way what they see That God is the one who has to save people. He is the one who opens the eyes. He is the one who opens the ears and gives them ears to hear. That there is, that God's God working here. That we're never going to convince someone with enough persuasion or skill or uh, the right presentation or the right tools. In the end, God has to save people. That all of our evangelism is, is, as it were, going out to the graveyard and saying, get up. You can't do that. We need something supernatural. We need someone to quicken them. And that is the Holy Spirit's role in salvation. And so we preach the gospel, but trust God to do the work. And then we come to the end that 
verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So here's this theme throughout Acts, that the gospel has gone to... Now, no, Paul gets to... Paul gets to Rome, and he's greeted on the way there by believers. And remember, back when he was at Corinth, he had written to the church at Rome, and so there were evidently was already some Christians there. They greet him, and so, I mean, I mean, for a Jewish boy, for a Roman citizen to make it to Rome at some point, I mean, this is like the capital of the known world. I mean, this is like, you know, getting to London or getting to new york or like this is like the central hub of the known world and and to him to get there and then seeing christians and what he'd been longing for in the beginning of uh of the book of romans how he longs to see them and be with them and share with them he's finally there but one of the first things he does is what he goes to the jews and tries to convince them to the jew first also to the greek as he said in romans and so he models that but then it says it goes to the gentiles we all in this room, assuming most in this room are Gentiles, we should be so encouraged and grateful that the gospel, that we get to be that wild olive branch that's grafted in to the people of God. And then we see in the conclusion here in verses 30 and 31, the faithfulness of God in the midst of persecution. And he lived there two whole years at his own expense, evidently going back to his tent making, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. Notice there, kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus. What he was proclaiming was the gospel of a kingdom, that we are ambassadors for Christ. It's not just, you know, like, okay, here's this individual thing, this personal thing, but the gospel is this power of God. It is the tip of the spear of the advance of the rule and the dominion of God for all over everything that this, the good news of the kingdom of Jesus. So verse 23 back there reminds us and encourages us that, that he, when he's, go back to verse 23, he, when he appoints this day, they come to him. He's expounding and testifying the kingdom of God, convincing them from the law of Moses and the prophets. That, that's an encouraging reminder to us that the whole Bible, the whole Bible is about Jesus. That the gospel, that it is centered in the gospel, that the whole, the, the Moses, prophets, all he was preaching Jesus to them from this. This gospel-centered heart. That even from his birth, um, that he's preaching Jesus. From Jesus' birth to his death, even at his consummation, that this book has one theme, the gospel. And then the book of Acts here ends in triumph, that he is preaching this gospel of this kingdom without hindrance. That the mission that Jesus had laid out for him was being accomplished. That the promise in Acts 1.8, that you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, was there. And if that promise was kept, faith in God's promises, if that promise was kept in the book of Acts, the continuation of that pr- promise to us, that after those, all the peoples have been reached and the gospel's gone to all those unreached people groups, that Christ would bring and set up the fruition, the whole, whole consummation of his kingdom, how much more for us? It continues. God overcomes opposition 
for the sake of the gospel. God will continue to build his church until he returns. And so we come to Rome and Luke ends his second book. We all love sequels in the end of a story, whether that be a, a great novel with a lot, long series or whether that be something as simple as a guy who started a boxing movie in the 70s finishing it off with the son of his opponent in Creed or something like that, you know? We all think that's cool to kind of bookend that, right? But you know, Luke begins the Gospel of Luke, and we're in the Christmas season now, by talking about how there was a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And so from here in Rome, a decree from a different Caesar than than in Paul's day, for a census to be taken for taxing purposes. Not thinking that this affects this remote rural village in Judea of Nazareth to a, a woman betrothed to a man named Joseph, Mary, who's with child of the Holy Spirit, and that that decree would bring him to the promised place of Bethlehem where Messiah would come from. And then I think it's interesting that So that's how Luke begins his two-book narrative, Luke and Acts. And then Luke ends his second volume with that that gospel of that Messiah reaches the heart of the Roman Empire. Isn't that awesome? Nothing could stop it. I mean, nothing could stop it. I mean, Rome thinks it's in control. Oh, we'll tax him. Get a census so we can not tax him. Yeah, but that guy appealed. Bring him here for, bring him here for uh, trial. Take, send him to Rome. And, and, and God is using that. That you can't stop God's kingdom. It advances. Now, you may notice, as we ended reading there, after 28, that it doesn't seem like the book of Acts really ends. It kind of leaves you in one of those cliffhangers. Kind of like when you're watching a TV show and it ends and you're like, well, wait, what about, what about? And then you realize, oh, there's probably another episode or you got to wait till the, the next season comes out, you know, so you can binge watch that one on Netflix or whatever, you know, you got to wait till that one comes out or, or oh, wait till the next movie comes out to see what happens to, you know, the Avengers or whoever it might be, right? And it kind of seems like the book of Acts ends that way. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It just, he's there preaching, unhindered. Well, we know at least while he's in custody here these two years, that he, from prison there, he at least pens three of what we call the prison epistles. So Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians are all written while he's here in Rome. But I love how John Stott put it. He said this way, The Acts of the Apostles have long ago finished but the acts of the followers of Jesus will continue until the end of the world and their words will spread to the ends of the earth. So there is a certain sense in which at the end of Acts 28 verse 31 that there's almost like a to be continued dot, dot, dot. And that's where we come in. So I ask, is this kingdom that advances from the manger 
to Rome that Paul has given him, and despite all the circumstances, and he's preaching the gospel of this kingdom from all the Testaments, Moses, prophets, this is the message that consumed him. What's your relationship with that kingdom like? Would you, are you willing to give your life to that cause, to that kingdom, to the advancement of that kingdom? And in some ways to ask yourself, so how should the book of Acts encourage us about the gospel of King Jesus? I mean, the book of Acts should be a huge encouragement to us as Christians about the gospel of King Jesus. That of all these promises fulfilled, you'll be my witnesses to be continued. That we're still part of it. It should encourage us. us. I mean, um, so I ask, what's your standing in relationship with the kingdom of Jesus? That every soul is going to have to answer that question. Where are you taking refuge to escape the penalty of your sins? Because the king will punish sins. And those who turn to King Jesus, he will be the refuge and rescuer of you. And you can find forgiveness and eternal protection and joy and purpose in his presence and in, in what he, by believing on what he did on the cross for you as the payment for your sins. And so, but maybe you are, and so that you need to become a Christian. And your relationship with the kingdom is you need to become part of that kingdom. And, and as we are turned from lightness to darkness, and as we believe on the gospel, we're translated from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of his dear son, and we become part of that kingdom. So, so but you, maybe you're already a Christian, and you say, okay, well, what's my relationship like with this kingdom? Well, are you giving yourself to it? I mean, is it even part of your program? Is God's program even part of what, you're, what you have... Um, what you have given yourself to, what you're fixed upon. And we've seen here that God's goals can't be thwarted. I mean, nothing can stop it. I mean, poisonous snakes, pagan gods, hurricanes, storms, nothing can stop it. So it is not luck that rules the world. It's not good sailing abilities. It is the God of the universe who rules the world. And He will accomplish his goals and his purposes. And so I ask you, I've been reading a book by um, Henry Blackaby about um, experiencing God, and one of his big things is to find what God's doing and where God's moving and be part of it. And you know what you can do when it comes to advancing the gospel through evangelism and through the local church? And the, is you know that you're being part of what God is doing, that God wants to move in that way. So give yourself to that. I mean, you know where this is going, and we can take it to the bank, these promises of God. Like Paul's banking on and believing that. I mean, so that my desires become what his desires are. And as the hymn, Praise to the Lord the Almighty, king of creation i love that stanza where it says hast thou not seen how thy desires e'er have been granted in what he ordaineth that god often works what he does for when our desires are united with his desires and so i ask you christian is the advance of his kingdom something that you are fixed upon and so as we've seen in these two chapters we should follow the example of paul by trusting god's promises and by fixing ourselves to God's purposes of advancing his kingdom. And so, how do we fix ourselves on God's purposes? Well, maybe that means you need to adjust something in your life. 
Uh, we might need to adjust something in our life so that we can be about the advance of the gospel to reach the nations, to continue what's happened in beginning from Acts 1-8 to now. For some, that means adjusting your life, becoming a missionary, leaving this place, going overseas. For some, that might mean adjusting your life by what, what you do with your leisure time or, or what you do with your, 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 your finances or, or, or what you do with, you know, what, what, the way you just structure things. You need to adjust, okay, what am I committed to here? I need to uh, make some adjustments in, in life. And so the book of Acts should encourage us to give our lives to a cause bigger than ourselves, to the cause, the colossal purpose of God that Jesus and his kingdom are advancing until the point that one day people from every nation, kindred, tribe, and people group will gather around the throne worshiping him who is worthy, the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the earth. And Acts should be such a huge encouragement for us to continue until that day. Let's have heads bowed, eyes closed. Let's just respond to this. In some ways, it's a bummer to conclude the book of Acts. And in other ways, that's how we should feel that it doesn't end, that we're still continuing in it. So you might need to just say, God, I, I, maybe it's something related to the promises of God, to having faith in the promises of God. Maybe it's something related to fixing yourself to the purposes of God. Maybe you're thinking, Jason, I um, I spend so much of my life interpreting my circumstances rather than the solid rock of God's promises. I need to adjust that. Let's just spend some time praying and responding to God's word. There may be some adjustments you need to make in your life to fix your life towards advancing the kingdom of Jesus. Maybe you need to just do some business with God. He might be pointing something out in your life that needs adjusting. Father, we thank you for the encouragement of the book of Acts, the example that we've seen and how you use ordinary people with personalities and flaws to do incredible things and the promise that you can continue to do that. Lord, this is an encouragement for us to give ourselves to believing your promises and giving our lives to your purpose. May we see acts continued in Emmanuel Baptist Church here in Clarksburg. Lord, would you draw and allow us to reach people for your glory? Lord, I pray that we'd also trust you, believe your promises rather than circumstances, that you're working all things together. 
to accomplish what you have in mind. Thank you for each dear one that's here today. I pray that you'd bless them today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, hey, I want to just encourage you to stick around and um, fellowship with one another. If you want to talk to someone about something, maybe you need to be saved, this is a great time to we'll be gathered around together. Um, I hope you have a great week. God bless. You're dismissed.